0: Well, welcome to our second Sunday of Advent. Advent, of course, is really just a way that the church developed over the years to kind of get ready for Christmas, prepare our hearts to celebrate the coming of Jesus into the world. And and so here we are on the second Sunday of Advent. We have looked at hope last week, love this week. Next week, we reflect on the joy, and in the following week, peace. And for Advent this year... Uh, doing things a little different, we're continuing in our series in the Revelation of Jesus Christ, which at first glance, for many of you, I'm sure, is like, what? (laughs) I dare you. Tell some folks from another church that you're doing Revelation for Advent. Just leave it at that and see what they come up with. But last week, we we looked at the question, is there any hope? And and realized that when we look around us, maybe in our own hearts, our own lives, and we talk to people that we know, that question, as we look at the world, as we look at uh, geopolitical struggles, as we look at terrorist acts, as we look at uh, the, the global economy, as we look at our own lives, our marriages, or our finances, or some of the struggles that we have in our health, we wonder sometimes, is God able to do anything at all, or will he do anything at all? Is God able to respond? Will he respond? And That question, is there any hope, which I think lies behind the questions that many people have, was answered resoundingly in this opening part, kind of part one of this vision in Revelation 4, where the answer is yes, and we receive this heavenly vision of God on the throne. That when life gets tough, when fear sets in, when the struggle seems too much, the the command of Revelation is to look... Because there's a throne in heaven and someone's sitting on it. It's not empty. That the the, the leadership, the the kingship of the world isn't up for grabs. That even when things are difficult, we know and can take hope in the fact that there is a throne and there is someone on it. And he's not going anywhere. And our response to that was that we worship. We worship the Lord God Almighty, the Holy, the Eternal One. We join this chorus of the these four living creatures and these 24 elders. We sing along. You are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. We worship that instead of wringing our hands in worry, we raise our hands in worship. That is such a different response. A lot of times we want to just wring our hands in worry, don't we? And many of our friends and family, that, that's a lot of what's going on, that we're wringing our hands in worry, but the, the call of this vision is that we stop <laughs> wringing our hands in worry, and instead we look at the one who sits on the throne and we raise our hands in worship. But if we're willing to be really honest, <laughs> we're still left with an important question. How? I mean, yeah, okay, God, you're on the throne, and you're so good, and you're so holy, and you're so powerful, we trust you, but how exactly are you going to make everything right? Like, how is this going to happen? It's, it's right that we see you on your throne, but the world is still a mess. Look around. It's right for us to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven But how, God, are you going to fix this mess? How are you going to step in and make a difference? How are you going to destroy evil and and replace it with good? How are you going to make everything new again? How is that going to happen? How are you going to rule, or how do you rule this world? Don't you want to know the answer to that question? I do. Wouldn't the answer to that question affect the way that you see your world? Wouldn't it affect the way that you see your life? Wouldn't it affect the way that you work? Wouldn't it affect the way that you parent? Wouldn't the answer to that question of how is God leading? How is God ruling? How is God going to make everything new? Or how is he in the process of making everything new? Wouldn't that change your perspective on your marriage? on what it means to be part of the church? Wouldn't it affect the way you think of your body? Your habits? finances? Wouldn't it change things? I think it would. Knowing how God is going to make everything right is going to change the way that I witness. It's going to change the way that I speak. It's going to change the perspective on the priorities that I have for the one life I have to live. And Revelation 5 contains the answer to the how. The how question. It's the answer that men and women have been looking for down through history. It's the answer that I think we long for today. How, God, will you make everything new? Now, if you're joining us maybe just today for the first time, or, or maybe a bit, a bit hit and miss this fall, I want you to hear something. The, the book of Revelation, this whole book, which you've maybe heard various things about, is a circular letter that was written to seven particular churches, and it unfolds in a series of, of visions. First, uh, Jesus reveals himself to John, who's this elderly uh, man in a penal colony, you know, chipping rocks away in a quarry, where Rome would put political dissidents and dangerous folks out in this island and, and, and would just leave them there to rot. And so John receives this vision of Jesus himself, and out of that vision, Jesus dictates seven personal messages... That he wants John to, he wants him to write the whole letter of Revelation to these seven churches, but he dictates seven personal messages to each one of these churches that sets up the rest of Revelation. It's kind of designed so that each individual church can hear the rest of Revelation through a particular interpretive lens. So they would know how to apply the rest of what Jesus says in the Revelation to their particular situation. Some of them need a lot of encouragement to just hold fast, to hold in there, to be faithful. Others are receiving a pretty significant challenge or rebuke, kind of equivalent of a Jesus slap to them, because they got to wake up. And, And so there's a variety of challenges and encouragement that's going on. Jesus wants these churches to hear the rest of Revelation through a particular lens. Well, from this opening vision of Jesus and these seven personal messages... Something shifts in the story, and and, uh, Dave read it uh, at the start of chapter 4. John is called now through a door in heaven, and he's given this bird's-eye view of the throne room of God. And Revelation 4 and 5 and onward is a single vision. And we started last week just by looking at chapter 4, focusing in on this one who sits on the throne and the kind of hope that that gives us. It was a good start, but it wasn't complete. Today, we get down to the core of the vision. We get in on the secret, get this, the secret of the meaning of history. That might sound like an overstatement to you, but it's not. Today, in this vision, we receive literally the key to understanding all of world history. Did you know when you got up this morning that you were going to come and here, literally the key that would unlock the mystery everyone's been looking for, that your heart has been longing for. Did you know that? Well, you did, whether you knew it or not. You're here today, and that's what we're going to look at. Well, here's what I want to do today. I want to just walk through Revelation 5. I'm going to try to make some sense of it. And, uh, and then I want to tease out a few implications for us. And then we're going to worship in response to it. Because we really can't see these visions or this vision of Revelation 4 and 5 without responding in worship, without joining the chorus of heaven. So that's where we're going to go today. So let's walk through it. Uh, In your bulletins, your programs, there's an insert. Revelation 5 is on there. Some of you brought Bibles and maybe on your smartphones you can look it up, whatever. But follow along. I'm going to be reading with the New International Version. And we'll, we'll just walk through Revelation 5 together. So after this, this vision of the throne and the one sitting on the throne, and after we heard the chorus of the elders and the four living creatures, and there's all this symbolism, and imagery, and description that reaches back into the Old Testament and draws a lot of different things together, John now focuses in on something particular, something that he hadn't noticed yet, something that is resting in the hand of the one who sits on the throne. Here it is, chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. This scroll is super important. Everything that actually happens from here on in the Revelation relates to this little scroll covered with writing, sealed with seven seals. Verse 2, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is? is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Who is worthy? No one. No angel, no human, no king, no wise man, no saint, no no being at all. We're not just talking about an inability, like they don't have the strength to open it. It's about no one being found worthy. No one having, no, no one having the level of righteousness, of, of, of purity, of the value, the excellence. No one being worthy. And in an act of what is like high drama, John sees the impossibility of this the impossibility of opening the scroll, and he weeps, and he weeps. Now, many of us read this at this point and go, uh, that's weird, because it's just a scroll with some writing on it. Why, Why is he so upset? This scroll, as we will see, contains God's sovereign plan to bring the world back to life. It contains God's plan to defeat evil. God's plan to restore his gracious rule over history, over creation. This scroll, we will see, contains the meaning and the destiny of all history. And here it is. John can see it, sitting there in the presence of everyone, the very secret of history, and no one can open it. No one can even look inside. No one is worthy. And it's worth weeping over. I mean, can you imagine it? A plan for redemption. A plan to destroy evil. A plan to finally make everything right. A plan to end the weeping of creation. A plan to, to, to finally stop the tears in children's eyes. A plan to finally feed the hungry. A plan that finally, finally deals with all the junk and all the wickedness. All the stuff that you and I ache about in our own lives. All the stuff we see on the news, maybe daily that we know breaks the heart of God breaks our hearts here's a plan to bring it all to an end and we can't open it no one's worthy to bring it no one's will, no one's able to execute the plan and John sees this and he weeps and he weeps because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and we need to feel it at that moment we need to feel what he's feeling weeping at the impossibility of God's good plan not happening. (laughs) Because you and I can't do it. There's no one worthy to do it. Or at least, (laughs) no one that John has seen so far. (laughs) But that's not the end of the story, is it? Then one of the elders, one of these 24 elders we've already met, says to John, do not weep. See or look, same word. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Can you imagine the sweet relief that John experiences at this point, having wept and wept at the impossibility that there's no one worthy and now hearing, actually, there is one, one who is worthy. And it's a lion. Now we're talking. That's exactly what we need, right? I mean, when we look at the evil in the world, when we look at the junk that's going on around us, don't we need someone who can come in and finally do something about it? How many times a day do we feel like what we really need is someone that's going to come in and rip someone limb from limb, metaphorically speaking, or otherwise. Someone that's able to lay down the smack, you know? Deal with the issues. Both of these, the, the images that are used here, the lion as well as the root, are images used in the Old Testament to talk about this Messiah who would come and finally make things right. This deliverer who would come. And when we see the evil in the world, when we suffer for being faithful to Jesus, when we look around and we ask, how will this mess ever get sorted out? We're hoping, I think, that someone, that God, will step in and do at least two things. Crush evil... And restore good. And now we hear that there's someone very powerful who's present. A lion. That's perfect. That's awesome. That's exactly what we need. A king of the beasts. Let him roar, you know? Let him deal with the junk that's going on. Let him solve the problem of evil. That's what we need. A lion. And so John turns, and what does he expect to see? What do you expect to see? I know what I expect to see. A powerful beast with muscles rippling, with teeth bared, poised to strike, to destroy, to get someone bloody. Isn't that what you expect to see? But when John turns, what does he see? (laughs) In one of the most dramatic, one of the most stunning kind of reversals of imagery in the whole Bible, John turns to see a lion, but... Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. A lamb? Are you kidding me? A little lamb? And that's the word used here. It's not the adult lamb. It's the little pitiful thing that just has no strength at all. He doesn't see a lion ready to rip up flesh. He sees a lamb with his own flesh ripped, looking as if he had been slaughtered. And it's standing at the center of the throne. What throne? The throne that we've already been looking at. The same throne that the the Lord God Almighty is sitting on. That's where the lamb is. And what's more, this lamb, he looks weird. He has seven horns which symbolized political, political strength, political authority, complete with the number seven, as well as seven eyes, which are interpreted directly in the text. The seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. This lamb, this little lamb, looking as if he had been slaughtered, he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. No one worthy? Yeah, there is one who is worthy. This lamb, this slain lamb, he is worthy to take the scroll. He is worthy to unseal the scroll, to execute the destiny of men and women of nations and galaxies. This lamb took the scroll and everything ripples out from this action. All the rest of Revelation is rooted in this act of the slain lamb, that he who is worthy takes the scroll and begins to open it. Begins to unveil God's plan to make everything new. But not yet. <laughs> we're going to be moving into the after effects of him taking this scroll somewhere in the middle of January. <laughs> from, from now to then, we're just going to worship. Because that's what they do. You see, first we worship because that's what happens in the story. We, we we hear that no one is worthy, no one's worthy to open the scroll of history, no one's willing or able to bring God's plan, you know, into existence. His plan to bring heaven to earth, to defeat evil, to to, to restore what's good. And now we see that there is one, against all odds, against all expectations, that there is one, the slain Lamb, who's not only worthy to open the scroll, but worthy of our worship. Look at, look at what happens next when, when the Lamb takes the scroll. All of heaven erupts in worship. And when he had taken it, taken what? Taken the scroll. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which, get this, are the prayers of God's people in other words as we pray we're already present in this throne room in this setting of worship and the 24 elders who represent the people of God are offering our prayers to the throne of God it's beautiful and they sang a new song saying you who the lamb you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals now why is the lamb worthy this is central to everything that happens now why is the lamb worthy He's worthy because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign, or some manuscripts say they do reign, on the earth. So that's the 24 elders. That's the four living creatures. But then I looked, John says, verse 11, and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. So now we're getting big here. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the Lamb. Why? Who was slain. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. (laughs) But it ain't done. Because then I heard every creature in heaven And on earth, and under the earth, and on the sea, and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne, that's chapter 4, And to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and (laughs) worshipped. The world awaits the answer to the problem of evil. How will this world be made right? How will God, who is on the throne, restore and redeem this mess we call earth, but He loves it? How will He do it? He will do it through the slain lamb. How does God rule in His creation now? Through the slain lamb. This is the answer we've all been looking for. Maybe we didn't know we were looking for it. But this is the answer we've been looking for that God rules His creation from His throne through the slain Lamb, Jesus Christ. That by entering into the suffering of the world, by taking the suffering of the world unto Himself, God rules history. That through His death, through His sacrifice, Jesus made known the secret, the key to all of life. That through His death, God will make all things new. That through his death, death itself would be defeated. That through his suffering, he would conquer suffering. That the mighty lion would conquer by becoming the slain lamb. Well, what are the implications of this for us? You probably got lots of questions about Revelation 5. There's a lot going on in there, but let's just tease out at least three implications today. The first one is that this is really good news. This is really good news. Let me, let me shoot straight with you. What this is saying is that at the very center of history, at the very center of, of, of your life, at the very center of what God is doing in the world, is Jesus' death and resurrection. Here at Advent, here on the second Sunday of Advent, we talk about the love of God. Captured most beautifully in the verse that Sherry and Xavier read, For God so loved the world that he gave, who? His only, his one and only son. That's the slain lamb. That God looks at a broken world. He looks at our messed up lives. He looks at the sin we've struggled with. He looks at all the ways we've tried and failed and tried and failed. And he loves us. It's good news to find out that at the very center of what God is doing is the slain lamb, Jesus Christ. It's good news because we realize that this immense cost, the the fact that God looked at the world and said, in order to make the world right, I'm going to pay the ultimate cost. I'm going to take suffering unto myself. I'm going to die in their place. Then I'm going to do whatever it takes to win them back, whatever it takes to restore them this incredible cost to God himself. And then for him to turn around and look at us, look at me, look at you, look at the world and say, I'm going to offer it to you for free. That's good news, folks. Because if there's no one worthy to open the scroll, there's also no one here worthy to make up for their own mess or their own sin. There's no one here that's able to figure out and achieve, and accomplish all that you were designed and created to accomplish without the slain lamb covering it for you. This is good news. This is, the, this is the very heart of things where God says, look, I love you so much. I want you to know that at the very center of what I'm doing in your life and in the world is Jesus' life given for you. That's good news. We can trust this Jesus the slain lamb. And so I want to ask, I want to do something a little different. I don't do this very often, I know. But there's some of us here today, we've been traveling for a while now trying to figure out who Jesus is. We've been exploring faith in Jesus. We've been maybe reading the Bible. Uh, we've been maybe connecting here for a while. And the reality is, it's time for you to trust Jesus. It's time for you To say, I may not know all what this means, but I'm going to say yes to what Jesus has done for me. So I'm going to go out on a limb here today. I'm going to ask you, those of you today who realize I've been dancing around for a while, but I'm ready to follow. I'm going to ask you if you're willing to respond to that. And in order to do that, I think what would be most helpful, because I recognize that in a social size this, you know, uh, uh, that we are here this morning, it's a little bit awkward. So I'm going to actually ask if you all be willing to bow your heads, close your eyes. With eyes closed, there are those of you here today who God is talking to very specifically. You've been holding back for maybe a variety of reasons. You haven't been sure. You're scared of commitment. You aren't sure what it means yet to even follow him. But you know today that God is speaking to you and he is asking you to take a step of faith to trust him. And that here this morning as you've heard that at the very center of what God is doing to redeem creation, at the very center of what God is doing to show his love to you is Jesus who died on a cross, who came at Christmas, who lived the perfect life, who died on a cross for you and for me, and he's asking you today to trust him. He's asking you today to respond to him. And if you're here today, and you feel like that is what God is asking you to do, I want you to raise your hand. Thank you. I can see that. Good. There's a few hands going up. Good. I can see that. Yep. Anyone else? Awesome. Put your hands down. I'm going to ask everyone to raise their eyes, look at me. And together we're going to pray this prayer. Because no one needs to pray this alone, okay? Six or seven hands have gone up. And we're going to pray together, thanking Jesus for his gift of love to us, okay? We're going to pray this together. I'm going to ask everyone to pray it with me. you're a follower of Jesus, um, you know, just pray with all of us together. Let's pray. Jesus... Thank you for your gift of life to us. Thank you for for coming and becoming one of us. For For living a perfect life. life. And for dying on the cross for me. me. Today, Today, I I thank you for forgiveness. I confess my sin to you. And ask that you would wash me clean. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. So I can live for you. So I can serve you. So I can follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you just give God a praise and thank you for what he's done? Now, those of you who put up your hands today, I want to talk to you. Okay? I want to talk to you. Uh, we can talk coffee time. We can talk this week. I we want to talk about next steps in following Jesus, okay? So everyone who raised your hands, we've got a date. That's just the first implication. There's, there's another one. <clears throat> this is for everyone who follows Jesus. Those of you who just committed your life to Jesus... Those of you who have followed Jesus for 85 years, and there are some of you in the room. I think that this vision of the slain lamb has tremendous implications for any follower of Jesus. We realize that following Jesus means we are following a slain lamb. And if we're following a slain lamb, it means that by definition, we are going to suffer because we follow Jesus. Maybe I should have said this implication first. Before. Okay. It means that we're following a slain lamb. That inherent within the way that God is ruling the world is a lamb who is slain. That God rules the world not through crushing violence, but by unbelievably, by taking suffering into himself. And he calls his people to follow him in the same way. And this is crazy. This is foolishness. Uh, The Apostle Paul said it this way. He said that the the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength, but it often doesn't look that way. People can look around and think, are you kidding me? Why would you do that? Why would you let them do that to you? you? Why would you accept that kind of violence? Why would you suffer in that way for Jesus? Why don't you stand up for yourself? And here Jesus invites us to follow him in this crazy, surprising, upside-down kingdom, something that we're going to see now fleshed out in all the rest of Revelation where he calls us people to be suffering witnesses for him that somehow, in the way that we live our lives following the slain lamb, in the way that we even suffer, we give testimony to the God who rules the world through a slain lamb and that, unbelievably, this is the way that people come to know the love of God. Not by taking up arms and perpetrating violence against someone else, but by being willing to suffer for the name of Jesus. That somehow, in the mystery of how God works, that that's how people come to know the love of God. And so the implications for us, I think, are a couple. One is that we actually are willing to enter into suffering with others. You know, as a church, now speaking of the Erickson Covenant Church, we need to be willing to walk with each other, don't we? We have to be willing to get involved engaged in each other 's lives. Some of us are going through really significant stuff hard stuff health health stuff that 's going on in our lives. Uh, some of us are struggling in relationships. some of us are, are are barely cutting it financially, maybe not cutting it. Some of us are, are really struggling uh, some of us have been wrestling with depression for a long time. Uh, there's just a variety of things going on. And I think it means that we, as, as, as a church, we as Christians, when we're following the slain land, it's a call for us to enter into people's lives, to suffer with them. And i got to tell you, as a church now, Erickson Covenant Church, if we want to continue to be the kind of church that God is calling us to be, it means that each one of us need to take responsibility for walking with one another as we follow Jesus together. Does that make sense? That what we realize in this kind, the implication of this is that it's not as though everyone in the room needs to somehow figure out a way to walk following Jesus with me as the pastor, or with a few select people that seem, whatever, mature enough or saintly enough or white-haired enough to do it. What it means is that we as the church say, you know what, I'm responsible for for her, for him. And one of the implications of this means that as I follow the slain lamb, I've got to do it with others. I've got to be willing to enter into the suffering of others' lives. Not just suffering, of course, there's joys, there's triumphs, there's amazing stuff. But what it means is that I can no longer just be a spectator, sit in the sidelines, come and warm a pew Sunday morning. But I actually need to step out, turn towards someone get in a little deeper, find out how we could actually live the implications of this out in our lives. We're committed to helping people find Jesus, but we're also committed to help people follow Jesus, aren't we? And the only way that can happen is if we, as the church, say, we're committed to following Jesus with each other. I think that's a huge implication. The other implication I want to point out, it might feel like a little bit of a sidetrack, but I'm just going to say it anyway, is that we're hearing a lot of rhetoric in the global media. Those of you who are on Facebook are hearing a lot of it too. An idea that to properly respond to violence, we need to be violent. I'm going to step on some toes right now. But I think there's a challenge there. In the way that we talk, in the way that we witness, in our larger community. Last week, a president of the largest Christian university in the United States told the students they should all get a permit to carry concealed weapons so the next time those Muslims come, we can end them. Okay? Now I know for some of us that sounds about right. You know, if the victims had guns, we could shoot back. I understand that. I do understand that. I hope you... I feel that. But as Christians, when we see evil being done, (laughs) if we follow a slain lamb, he is not packing a gun. He's not. He's slain. And as we read on in the Revelation, they overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. It's the central verse of all of Revelation. They overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And what's the last phrase? Because they didn't love their lives even unto death. Following the slain lamb, the implications of that is that people, Christians, men and women, follow Jesus into place of suffering and are willing to even die for it. That when Jesus said, "Love your enemies," He wasn't offering a mild suggestion to do when it's convenient. He was actually telling us that right at the heart of what God is doing in the world is not only a slain lamb, but a suffering people willing to witness. The word martyr and the word witness are, are from the same root. They're actually the same word. And, and it sprung up because the church in the early centuries knew that to follow Jesus meant I have to be willing to suffer. I have to even willing, be willing to die. And that, that doesn't look that way for, for most of us. I understand that, actually dying. But I'm now challenging us as a church to be more clear in our witness, even when we speak about these things, that though it's unpopular... And though some of you are upset with me right now, that we're willing to say, you know what? It's not easy. It's not fun. I didn't make it up. But when Jesus said, love your enemies, and when he said, right at the very center of what God is doing in the world is a slain lamb, he wasn't kidding. And as a Christian, I'm just going to obey Jesus. He's the one that died and rose again from the dead. I didn't. So one of the implications is not only how we walk with each other, but how we witness to the world in the very way that we speak, the way, very way that we speak about how Jesus is going to make everything new. And so I want to ask, very specifically, that we would respond by saying yes to Jesus. I'm now asking all of you who say, I'm a follower of Jesus, that you would this morning, having heard that right at the center of what God is doing is this slain lamb Jesus, that you would say, You know, Jesus, I want to follow you. It's kind of like saying this morning, I have been following you, I want to recommit, or I haven't really, been a bit shaky, I've been kind of off doing my own thing, but I realize that if this is the center of what you're doing and you're calling me to follow you, then I am in. I'm in. So I want to do the same thing I just did a little earlier. I want you to close your eyes, bow your heads. Jesus is calling us to be his people, And through the revelation, he's revealing the true vision of God to us. And he's calling us to be his people, even when it's difficult, even when it means stepping out of a comfort zone, even when it means witnessing in an unpopular way. He's calling us to be his people who love right to the point of suffering and death. And so I want to ask, are we willing to commit to that? Is the Spirit calling you today to recommit your life to following the slain lamb and expressing those implications in whatever way the Spirit leads us to? And if that is you, I want you to raise your hand. Raise them high. Jesus, you see our hands raised? You know our hearts. You know the struggles we carry. And Jesus, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would fill us with courage, with wisdom. Fill us with a vision of you and a willingness to follow you where you lead. And for every hand that is raised, Lord Jesus, I ask that this week you would fill with your Spirit each one. And that as a result of their commitment today and their step of faith to follow you, they would see your work done in their lives and through them in the lives of others. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So the first implication was that we, we trust the slain lamb. The second one is that we follow him. And the third one really is that we worship. We can't end this without worshiping. And so I want to invite the worship team to come now back to lead us in worship And as we do that, hear the words again of all of heaven, of the angels, of the living creatures, of the elders, of of, of everyone that can express it. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. To him who sits in the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. We respond in worship. We respond by saying to Jesus, yes, because you were slain, You are worthy. Worthy to open the scroll. Worthy to execute what God has planned. But for today, (laughs) worthy of all of our worship. Amen.